This is an excerpt from a poem by Yosano Akiko, who was a Japanese poet that lived about the time of Walt Whitman. And uh, it's a little, maybe he was inspired by some of her writing, actually, because it's so, there's a lot of similarity. And this excerpt goes, What I count on is a white birch that stands where no human language is ever heard. What I count on is a white birch that stands where no human language is ever heard. The stillness, that which can't be named, that which cannot be spoken, that which is not of our surface reality, whether by symbol or by poetry or by an inner feeling. We look for uh, things that anchor us, just as we take refuge in Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha. We look for things that will anchor us as we go through these insights that we um, uh, we are in all of these different ways, continually finding ground, even as the ground at times gets pulled out from underneath us. So it's this being willing to have the ground pulled out from underneath us and being available to the knowing of ground. They are uh, joined together. They're not separate in my experience. So to review where we are in our process of this understanding, this opening to our own experience, our own personal experience, each of us, of this liberating, dependent arising, liberative, dependent arising, this transcendent, dependent arising, all these different ways of referring to this kind of movement into a new understanding, a new level of awakening. So where we are is, as you recall, Gil, two nights ago, uh, uh, com uh, concluded the preparatory factors of concentration. And uh, with the wonderful analogy of the river and getting on boats and so forth, and the cat that purrs, uh, very wonderful. And, and, and then last night, Dara started us on this uh, exploration of knowledge and vision, the first of the insights of this whole chain, the first of the insights, knowledge and vision. And uh, she took us through the first of the uh, two understandings, uh, the large category of understandings that arise in knowledge and vision, and that is around having knowledge and vision of anicca, of change. And uh, what was uh, for so inspiring to me was that she actually led us through the felt sense of change. This, that, that the truth of a Nietzsche, what it feels like, rather than one more just description of it. And so as we, as we do this, we remember, as the Buddha said in this particular sutta, that, that we are involved in 
uh, uprooting. We are uprooting to understand things as they really are. We're uprooting uh, the, the, uh, the hindrances, the fetters, all of this to understand things as they really are. And that's knowledge and vision. And then there comes fruit from that later on in the process. So uh, this, this knowledge and vision, it is a particular kind of knowledge that brings vision. And it's called insight knowledge because the knowledge that we, the understanding that arises leads to direct insight, to seeing into, to seeing through vipassana, this idea of, of seeing through, of, of seeing it as it is. It's, a, it's not the surface level, we're seeing through the surface level to how it actually is, both this, the surround, and our own nature. So the nature of the surround and our own nature and insight into what is the wise relationship, what is the compassionate relationship given the nature of the surround and given our nature. What is the wise, compassionate relationship? And then we, we as we gain that understanding, we use mindfulness, and intentional mindfulness, mindfulness of our intention moment to moment to live this out with the aspiration towards freedom. So this, uh, this direct experience of knowledge and vision is not a conceptual understanding. It is a, a direct hit. It's intuitive. It's a, aha, oh, I get it. Some of you have come in uh, reporting both on a personal level and or a, a, a general understanding of aha moments. Oh, I finally understand what this means. Oh, I now I get an experience of this. You could be in general be saying, oh, I'm my retreat, rah, rah, rah. And yet you will report something that is uh, occurring that actually is quite important. And then go back to the rah, rah, rah. <laughs> and that's, that's the way it works, you know. That's the way it works. Because, you know, we, we have a, a selective bias to see, as I mentioned the other night, I believe, to see what's wrong rather than to see what's working well. And in some ways that's very helpful to us as human beings, and in some ways it really gets in the way in, in meditation practice. Because we don't notice all of those moments of peacefulness. We fail to notice the times the mind's content. We just forget, and so all of this is kind of a reminder of that, this little piece of the talk. So this, the knowledge and vision, as I said, the first is understanding Anicca. Understanding Anicca as a felt sense, it really is changing. It's always changing. There is, there's not anything that's not changing that is made up of the five aggregates that uh, we had a talk of, uh, earlier in the retreat. Uh, this, that the five aggregates, that nama rupa, the everything of body and mind, is made up of these parts, and it's always changing. We are living in a flow. We're really living in a flow. There's, there's no 
uh, disputing it, and it's easy to watch. You can imagine, I'm going to build on Gil's analogy because I loved it so much, uh, you don't even have to get on one of those boats if you, because that's like a construct that you kind of identify with that construct and you hop on, oh, I'm this person or I'm that person or uh, whatever it may be. If you also notice the river itself, it's always flowing. And that flowing river is like the stream of consciousness, the stream of mind moments, one after another after another. And we can take any given moment and get on a boat. And in some ways we do that because it's a little scary to see that it's a flow of mind moments. And that's the knowledge and insight of what's not self. That's the direct understanding of what's not self that starts to come up. It's... Um, a confusing, it's, can, it can be confusing, it can be disorienting. It's like, okay, well, what's the plan? You know, how, I, <laughs> how do I deal? <laughs> I've got my assignment, the ego says to us. I know what to do, but now you're, you're, you're changing the, the whole assignment. What do I do now? And then this brings up the questions, well, if, if I'm not this and I'm not that, then who's making this decision? Who decided to come to this retreat? And who keeps sitting there? <laughs> <laughs> and this is long before we get to, well, you know, who finds Nibbana and, uh, and so on and so forth. So it's, it's, um, uh, it's not so easy to open to this. And, so, and we, uh, out of that anxiety, we can get... Um, we can lean into looking for a way to understand it, to define it for ourselves, rather than staying back in the question. And one of the things that we learn in practice is to live the question and not the answer. Because the answer is, we, we create constructs, or answers, those boats flying down the river, you know, floating on down the river, just down the river, some fast, some not so fast. And uh, if we don't do that, if we just stay watching the flow of the river, understanding comes to us. But that's very hard to do. It's very hard to do. First of all, our mind likes being engaged, but also it's too insecure. Well, what if I'm doing this wrong? Or what if I can't understand this? Or can I trust this? Can I understand this teaching? Maybe there's some flaw in this whole teaching. All sorts of thoughts like that can come because it's unsettling because we don't quite know what's being pointed to till we do. We just don't know till we do. And getting used to that uncertainty, being willing to just sit in the not knowing, that is noble, sitting in the not knowing. One way that I understand and work with this uh, uh, penetrating, this insight into the knowledge and vision of what is not self is that I, from again, in, in my own understanding, the way I have approached it, is that I have looked at this experience from what does the Buddha 
what, 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 is, what is the criteria? What's being defined here in terms of not self? And uh, for me, there's three uh, criteria for examining is this self or not self. One, is it changing or not changing? If it's changing, it's certainly not a permanent self. Could be some little temporary self, but certainly not a permanent self if it's changing, because if it's changing, it can't be permanent by definition. We can all get that. And so, the, so as we look at various levels of our experience, various aspects of our experience, we look and say, okay, well, is this changing or not changing? And then, then secondly, is, is it, uh, is it uh, independent of everything else, or is it, is it interdependent? Is it made up of the aggregates? Does it exist by itself? So, my hand does not exist by itself. There is not actually anything called a hand. We call a, 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 a whole interconnectedness of bone and tissue and blood vessels and a, a hand, and we're referring to that organization and what it can and cannot do in terms of moving. And that's what we call a hand. But we can't find any one single thing that is a hand. We just can't find it. It's, it's interdependent. Does that make sense? Because I mean, we can all look at our hand and do this little exercise with ourselves. I have done this exercise hundreds of times with various things, trying to see if it is in fact possible to find something that is, that is created, that, is, that is, is not interdependent, that is not based on other conditions. I have not succeeded in finding that. The uh, classic teaching is, uh, from the time of the Buddha is that of a chariot. So there's a chariot, and you know, you see it, and you see it rolling. You go, oh, that's a chariot. Okay, well, but exactly where is that chariot? If you take off a wheel, is it still a chariot? If you take off both wheels, is it still a chariot? If you take off the cart and leave two wheels, it'd be hard to call it a chariot, but... Where is the chariot? And it's safer, it's uh, more comprehensible to that level of examination. Where is this chair that I'm sitting on? Is there actually a chair or am I sitting on a manifest interdependent co-arising called chair made up of wood and cushion and tissue of the of, of the feathers inside, or whatever's inside, this foam, whatever it may be. So where is the chair? Oh, oh, new orientation. The chair is just as reliable as before, but my clinging to it as a, as uh, a, a chair that is this solid, independent thing can fall away. And it still worked just fine. What we see is that it's useful to have this name, chair, but as we look through, it is expressing something other than what it is expressing on the surface. It's very useful what it's expressing on the surface. Uh, if, if I say I need a chair and somebody finds a chair for me, I'm very appreciative of that chair. But I'm really saying I need 
this inter- interdependent manifestation that can support my my aching back <laughs> you know that's that's the that's the more truthful experience but that why say all that you know i just need a chair it's like shorthand it's it makes it much easier when it gets to this arising of 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 identification trickier still true that uh, it's very helpful to talk about my practice. But, but who, who is my, you know? And is it really my practice? And so this is another aspect of this. Is it subject to our control? Is it, if, if, it's, if, it's, me, or if it's me or truly mine, then it should do what I want. If, if my thinking mind is truly me and mine, then it should think the way I want it to think and should not go wandering off when I want it to stay right here. And the mind doesn't meet that criteria in terms of the Buddha's defining of what he means by what's not self. Anything that isn't subject to these kinds of conditions, it's not self. And why does that matter? Why is he going through this? Because we look for happiness. We look for a permanent kind of happiness. We look for a reliable happiness in things that are not self. They change. They're not reliable. And the experience is unsatisfactory. And yet we go look again. We go, well, I just got the wrong thing. I'll go look for something else and something else and something else. And so we live desire-based lives. We live the lives that, are, that we're conditioned. We're told this matters. And if it's unexamined, we go right ahead uh, in some way, uh, acting, interacting, choosing based on old conditioning and old habits and what someone else has told us rather than our direct experience of what's, what's true for us. And therefore, uh, uh, we look for happiness in areas that in this sense, this very specific definition of happiness, that our unhappiness, we're confused. And what we think is, is, is a source of unhappiness is actually closer to happiness. This, uh, this new way of relating to experience. But we can't relate to it till we've seen it. And we're in the insight stage. The fruit comes later. The last, uh, the last part of uh, this uh, noticing what's not self, is that in relation to our own experience, is there in this very moment even, a there there? And this is the third kind of dukkha in the Samyutta Nikaya version of the Four Noble Truths. And, uh, and, uh, and the, there's, there's emotional and physical pain, this, that kind of dukkha, what's called dukkha dukkha. And then there's the dukkha of change, you know, that there's, there's this kind of unsatisfactoriness because everything's changing. So the ego doesn't like physical and emotional pain. You may have noticed that. It likes even less that things are always changing because it never gets anything taken care of because it's always changing. You've got to brush your teeth again. You, you, you've gotten health. You've gotten healthy. And now you're getting a cold and you're on retreat and getting a cold. This is not going to plan at all. This is, this, there's a dukkha in that. There's an unsatisfactoriness to this. There isn't going to be happiness found of, uh, of that 
since it's all going to change on us. But then the third kind of dukkha that's there in the first noble truth that relates to this thing of not self is this uh, unsettling thing that in a moment of our experience, where is the there there in our experience? And this uh, um, I really resisted this one. <laughs> the first two I was kind of uh, I was I was cool with. I I could get down with those. But this idea that there was not a there there in the moment that did not fit my own uh, inner experience the way I had told it to myself. Um, and so it took a long time of just looking at that. Where, where is the there there? Who is it that's having this moment's thought? Who's having this moment of, of pleasure? Who's having this moment of gratitude? Who is it? Who is it? In this very moment, even if I just take this, this, if I take that one drop of water in the river, and okay, in this moment there's this one drop in the river, does, does it exist on its own? Oh no, it's made up of all these different atoms, and it's all this, there's no, it, everything's moving, there's not, any, there's not any unmoving thing there, and so it is with our mind in that same way. And so this is the kind of, uh, this is what we're exploring tonight, is, is this um, journey through to uh, uh, identifying with all of our experience, to not identifying with our experience, but not rejecting our experience. In fact, having a deeper, uh, richer, and wiser relationship with our experience. Said another way that this, this uh, journey to understanding not, what's not self is that we're moving from a personal view, taking everything personal, to a non-personal view. View meaning understanding, way of looking at. And we are moving from a, 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 a kind of clinging and attachment to our experience, to having the very same experience but without clinging and having that very same experience as letting it go as it's arising. It seems like on the surface that would make us less happy, less satisfied, but it goes anyway. <laughs> That's the joke. It disappears anyway. You know, you've, uh, you've, uh, You've uh, walked somewhere where you're having that moment and watching the moon, and it's a great moment. But then your mind thinks about something else. What happened? It went away anyway. We, we, we want it to stay. Well, I love this. I, I'm feeling this. And then we're not thinking about it anymore. Where did it go? Where did it go? What happened to that person that's now thinking about, you know, uh, am I going to... Uh, uh, go to bed now, am I going to do this? Or like for tomorrow morning, like, am I going to get up for the sit? The planning mind takes over. That person that was appreciating the moon, and it may have happened in an instant. In an instant. So there was never anything that we could really cling to in the sense of that moment's permanence that way. So we start to see that. It doesn't mean that there's not uh, there's not reliable ground. The Dharma, the Dharma is reliable as a view to understand. We, we, we learn that more and more in time. Uh, in, 
in my book, Emotional Chaos to Clarity, uh, with some trepidation, I made the whole second chapter about what is not self. And uh, I think it actually off, was off-putting to the readers. It made people uncomfortable. They weren't ready for this because it was uh, aimed more for everybody, not just, you know, Buddhist practitioners. But I wanted to just uh, mention some of the things that are not self that, that I mention in there. We are not our bodies. You are not your body. You're not your body. It's not permanent. It's always changing. It does not do what you want. You can't find an independent thing called body. You dissect it in all sorts of ways and you can't find a single thing that's independent that's body. So you're not your body. Are you responsible for your body? From my view, yes. Are we blessed to have a body? From my view, yes. To have embodied uh, uh, awareness is a blessing. To have the sense gate experience of a body in movement, a body receiving, to be able to have the felt sense of insight rather than to be this uh, 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 energetic, abstract energetic that has not got a manifestation in this realm. Oh, I, think we're, I think we're lucky to have a body uh, as a, a basis of experience. But in this definition of not-self, it clearly fits we're not, that we're not this body. That doesn't mean we're not to know the body. Um, because I didn't identify with my body. I was in my 40s before I really said, I'm going to know this body. And I am so glad I did. I took all of these trainings to really experience the subtleties of the body and got interested in the energetic experiences of the body uh, and, and not just in the meditative way that I had known and not just in the yoga way I'd known, but in all of these different modalities. So uh, we want to have, why wouldn't we want to have, uh, have an enjoyable relationship with the body? But to think we are this body starts to imprison us. And likewise, we are not our history. Uh, tell me about you. Sounds like there's a you there that someone that you're supposed to tell people about. But we're not our history. So we're not, when we look through, we're not limited, we're not defined, we're not imprisoned by our history. We're just not our history. I don't have time to talk you through each of the details, but we can go through the logic of each of these using those criteria <coughs> and come to uh, some real feeling that, no, we're not our history. Nor are we our stories. So we each have a history and we each have a story or multiple stories about our his based on our history and <coughs> our relationship to our history. We're not, we're not our story. Nor are we our personality. Personality is forever changing. And it's, it, your personality in one moment is not the personality, it's the next moment. And, <coughs> and in fact, um, uh, with different people, different personality emerges right away, right? 
And even when we're with ourselves, there you are all by yourself sitting here on the cushion and all these different aspects of your personality, which are not necessarily very coherent <laughs> at times, <laughs> emerge. They just, they just do. So they, they don't, they're not self in this sense of understanding that, that, that which will carry us forward. But again, there's nothing wrong with our personality. Um, uh, I was, uh, when the Venerable Sumedho was coming here to teach, um, I did this uh, interview with him for the Spirit Rock newsletter. And in that interview, he, he looked at me and he said, you know, your personality never gets enlightened. And then he said it in here, and that was such a relief that the personality never gets enlightened, that the personality is this, this uh, contingent, accumulated parts that's based on all these conditions that are always changing, and therefore it's always changing. And uh, uh, nor are you your gene pool. You're not the particular genetic pattern that you received. First of all, even it changes. It's deteriorating. It's creating new relationships, that genetic pattern as it goes. It, along with the conditions, are what determines on the surface level. What, the, the, what we, our experiences, the conditioning of our lives, and the genetic patterning um, occurring in a, and affected by the surround are, are what make us on a surface level. But that's on the surface level, not the deep down level. Nor are we our emotions. Emotions arise and pass. We certainly know that, but we can get so identified. Uh, we may have anger as an emotion. We may have guilt as a, a strong emotion that's reoccurring, or this wanting, or this aspiration, this aspiration for freedom. They arise and pass. They arise and pass. We can't find them independent of all the conditions. Nothing wrong with the emotions. Emotions are to be understood, explored, uh, cultivated wisely, but not, not a me and mine in that way. And we're certainly not uh, who others claim we are and, or who tell us we are. And yet, we carry around inside a lot of identification that this is who I am, that somebody told me who I am. It can, it can be a mother or a father or um, uh, a, a group of people that they've told you who you are. And it's so, because it ties into story and the condition all this, we can really think that's who we are. But that too is to be let go of. And we are not, uh, we're not our, our family of origin or our tribe. We're not that. We, we have been affected by, uh, we carry around uh, habits and views from our family, from our tribe, but we're not that. We're separate from that. So important to claim for ourselves that no, what, what is here, that what's really here underneath is something other than that. Nor are we our habits and preferences. And those preferences can seem like awfully close to us at times, can't they? Well, I, I clearly like this and I don't like that. So conditioned 
and it'll change. It'll change. It may have changed on retreat. I remember uh, 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 being on a long retreat, and I never cared for spinach. And it was very clear to me that I'm someone who doesn't like spinach. I'm not allergic to it or anything. I just don't like spinach. But something about the diet of, of, of that particular retreat, what was being served and all, after about three weeks or four weeks, I started craving spinach. And I was going, what's this? And I, I mean, I was like, I was resistant, you know. <laughs> this did not fit my story. I became a person and remain, I now have a preference for spinach. <laughs> One holds it lightly. One holds it lightly. It's not me or mine. There arises this preference. And when it's held lightly, there's no problem. It's the, it's the holding tightly that's the problem. And uh, hard for me to accept for a long time, you're not your responsibilities. I would not have named that as an identity but I acted as though that were my identity. I acted because of my early experience. I came to value the one who is responsible. And I became that what I was looking for. I wanted somebody to be responsible. And I couldn't find somebody to be responsible. So I became that which I wanted as a, a way of organizing, a way of being. And um, I didn't mean then to like keep it forever. <laughs> uh, actually, even even in uh, my post college years, I made decisions thinking that I was I was going to. I became an entrepreneur at a certain point, and uh, my whole idea was that I was going to make just enough money so that I could go be a lost young man. I really wanted to be a lost young man. I wanted to not be responsible, but I couldn't go out poverty-wise, having nothing and be a lost young man. Because not having, not having any financial security for so many years had conditioned me that I couldn't, I, there was not, who I was by conditioning would not allow that. Although I could easily have done that. In, in, in an intellectual way, I understood that. I understood lots of other people did. But my conditioning was so strong, I, I, could not, I had to be responsible. I had to have this. And so I did this whole thing just to be able to, to not, I took on all this extra responsibility to just, so I could stop being responsible. But then I couldn't do it when it came to it. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't need that much money. And so when I finally took some years because of uh, not my not understanding anything about business when I started, but um, it, it wasn't very much money because uh, I lived so simply. But then when the time came, okay, just be irresponsible. Just go be and see what happens. My, my, the movement of my identity, which was so strong, I, 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 couldn't, I couldn't create an imagination of what that looked like. If I had it to do over, I'd much prefer to go be irresponsible. I'm not going to be sitting here tonight. But who knows, I might have had a lot more fun. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you're not your responsibility. Or what other, your version of this is, you're the one who's supposed to suffer. You're, you're, you're the one who doesn't get a turn. You're the one for whom it never works out. You're the one who always wins. Whatever your version of this is. 
and, and nor uh, nor are you your persona this face that you present to the world uh, you're not your persona nor are you your ego although we really want to value the ego the, the way I understand and use the word ego is that executive function that has memory and association it has a kind of uh, ability to to weigh to appraise to, and to make a decision and then to organize and organize movement towards without that without all those functions we can't move towards our goals including our dharma goals without those functions we can't even organize ourselves to get to a, a long retreat because you know how hard it is to find the time and the money and the resources to get to a long retreat so we're not the ego, you're not your ego, but don't leave home without it. It's a very useful thing, this ego. C.G. Jung said that the first half of life, the task was to create a healthy functioning ego, and the second half of life was to let go of it. So uh, I started out with this idea of killing the ego, that that was like the idea that we kill the ego, and that has really changed in my own personal understanding. It's much more that the ego assumes its natural place as the helper. And there's this, this greater relationship that is our basis for living our lives. And in our tradition, of course, it would be the Dharma. We're structured, we're, we're organizing around the Dharma understandings. And uh, the, the Dharma values of the loving kindness and the non-harming and so forth. So, and then the ego, when the ego actually is let off the hook, it feels so good. But it, there's a process in between when the ego is starting to lose its central place in our psyche, but it hasn't actually moved yet. That's a very unpleasant time, for at least was for me. A very, very unpleasant time. Very confusing, and I, there was a lot of reactivity in the ego in this. Uh, but once, it, once it's actually uh, out of there, it really, feels, it really feels much better. That doesn't mean, by the way, we're in line. It certainly didn't mean anything like that to me. But it meant that I had a different relationship to the ego. And is it always that way? No. But it's, it's a lot of the time that way, all because of practice. So that there starts to be this new relationship where the abilities of the ego to move in the relative world becomes this servant, this, this, uh, this empowerment for our really moving towards liberation. But we have to let loose of the ego, otherwise it doesn't have a chance to move. It doesn't have a chance to find this new relationship that it, uh, it, it, that it likes much better. I talk about it sometimes like the puppy dog. It likes being a puppy dog much more than it likes being you know, the, the master, the owner of the self in that way. And then last is that we are not our private self. You know, those inner thoughts we have and all this. The things that nobody knows but us. That these feelings we have, this felt sense, these, these, these little knowings, all of these different things that seem so essentially us. Even those are always changing. They're not subject to our control. And we, we can't find a there there. They are composed. They're always moving. 
And so uh, as, we, as we start to let loose of this, we start to see that there's a, a much wider range of possibility. In fact, one of the things we discover, which I was uh, in the poem that Dara read last night, I came up and that poem, uh, she, she said, the, she let go the, the committee of, inde- of indecisiveness within her. The committee of, of indecisiveness within her. So for 20 years I've taught that actually instead of a single ego sort of thing, that we, we in, in terms of our identity, we have a committee inside. There's an inner committee. We all know if, about that inner committee. This, this, there's this view and that view. and they, you know, there's, there's all these different aspects of us. They're an inner committee and different members, depending on who's dominant at the moment, we make, we make different decisions. We have different interpretations of things. It's always moving around. It's not, it's not solid. And we can get very indecisive because the inner committee is of mixed feelings about something we're trying to decide or even have a view about. And so uh, there's, this, uh, yeah, there's this always this kind of failing with this. And uh, we start to develop a new relationship with change. Uh, uh, we accept change without resisting. We learn to trust that we can stay present, that the mindfulness can be there to change, that we don't have to have an identity that's meeting change. We are available to change and we watch it and uh, and, uh, we start to have very direct experience of that as we'll be getting to tomorrow night and later. This is a poem by Stanley Kunitz, and he wrote it when he was, he was a, a twice Nobel laureate in this country, the poet Nobel laureate uh, in this country. And he wrote this when he was 89, and it's called Remembrance, the Layers. I have walked through many lives, some of them my own, and I am not who I was. That's owning the change. It's owning it. But that we've walked through many lives, some of my own. There was many versions of me, many versions of you. I could easily tease out the many versions of you that have already existed. And you've also walked through lives of others. And those many versions of you are not really separate from those other lives you've walked through. A little reflection, I can reveal that for yourself. I have walked through many lives, some of them my own, and I am not who I was, though some principle of being abides from which I struggle not to stray. From a Dharma point of view, this principle of being would be wise intention. That's just to not stray from that, and our right view, to not stray from right view. I have walked through many lives, some of them my own, and I am not who I was, though some principle of being abides from which I struggle not to stray. When I look behind, as I am compelled to look, before I can gather strength to proceed on my journey, I see the milestones dwindling towards the horizon and the slow fires trailing from the abandoned campsites 
over which scavenger angels wheel on heavy wings. Oh, I have made myself a tribe out of my true affections. May each of us be able to say that at some point in our lives. May each of us be able to have a chosen family, a family of choice based on our own love and shared experience. Oh, I have made myself a tribe out of my true affections, and my tribe is scattered. How shall the heart be reconciled to its feast of losses? In a rising wind, the manic dust of my friends, those who fell along the way, bitterly stings my face. Yet I turn, I turn exulting somewhat, with my will intact to go wherever I need to go. And every stone on the road precious to me. This moment, this moment, this moment. In my darkest night, when the moon was covered and I roamed through wreckage, a nimbus-clouded voice directed me, live in the layers, not on the litter. Live in the layers, not on the litter. Live in the layers, not on the litter. Drop in. Drop in. Though I lack the art to decipher it, no doubt the next chapter in my book of transformations is already written. I am not done with my changes. This courage, this willingness to stand under our losses, our disappointments, the things that didn't turn out the way we had hoped, the way we didn't turn out the way we had hoped, the way we did turn out the way we were hoped, and we liked it a lot, and now we're not that anymore. <laughs> All of these kinds of change that can be difficult. Being willing to be available for further changes. When I was um, uh, two and a half years old, uh, I had my first moment of forming an identity, of forming a self. I'd had a, um, uh, I had a, an experience that was uh, frightening to me and uh, totally startling. And the effect of it was that it actually woke me up in some way that uh, in child development psychology I've been told repeatedly is the brain's not ready for, but nonetheless, if I'll, I'll always go with experience versus <laughs> somebody's theory. And I, I was suddenly aware that I was separate and responsible for my separateness in terms of safety. And um, after this incident occurred, I sat by myself for some hours and uh, doing what I now was, would know as reflection or contemplation. Uh, trying to f like figure this out. This is a very startling piece of information to me as this little boy. And, um, and so I, uh, uh, I, I can remember, I, I, all the thoughts are all long gone, but I, I remember the contemplation of that separateness and the vulnerability I felt, but also the exhilaration. I would not have used either of those words. I didn't know any words. But I knew that feeling. I knew that feeling of vulnerability and of exhilaration. Because I was organizing and all the thoughts were around, like, how do I be safe? 
And that, but then instead of feeling awful, in some ways it felt great. <laughs> it felt great because there was a certain claiming of, a, of an, an independent identity. And that actually is a good feeling. Uh, we know this, children like to do this later on. They start forming identity this way. And so, and so um, uh, as my life unfolded, that identity uh, became more and more solid as an identity. Um, and uh, as I, um, uh, I had another uh, a time of, of ch- challenge around the age of five, in which, um, uh, uh, again, a, a very challenging situation, and that identity stayed intact. I was this person who could take responsibility for myself. Even though I was helpless in the particular thing that happened, I still, inside, was intact. I was me, and I knew I was me. And uh, I had great gratitude for this. Uh, and uh, uh, so, you know, this is, this is an identity forming. It was not identity based on relating to others. It was an identity based on my own internal experience. And it was useful. It was very fortunate that I was this identity. But in, in that time around five, um, that I was uh, that I faced this other challenge. Uh, someone, uh, 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 one of my siblings, faced it with me. A sibling that was six years older than I am, and uh, um, she was not intact. She was not intact. She didn't have an identity that was not. Uh, externally related. And so it was, I watched, I watched her collapse as this five-year-old around, around something that had not collapsed me. I was going, why is, why is she collapsing? But uh, the thing that I felt the most was shame. Some of you have talked about shame and guilt. This, uh, I felt shame because I didn't know what to do, and I didn't intervene. And um, what exactly I imagined intervening, I just felt like I should have intervened. And so I added a new piece of identity at five, and this was that the, the, the identity of shame. And I'd not known that before then. I did not have the, these these child development things around. There's things you can develop shame around. I didn't have any of that, but I had I had shame here because in my I'd already had a view of myself uh, that uh, that I uh, that I was, had a certain empowerment in the world, and I didn't live up to it. And uh, that empowerment was not based on my in my own view of myself. I didn't have any sophistication of this in language, but my safety was not supposed to be the consideration. It was supposed to be doing what I do. And so this went on for some period of time uh, as I I grew more and more intact and more and more independent from uh, my identity being defined by others. This this is all still in grade school and all. Uh, So by the time I was 14, I'd I'd gone through, uh, I'd, I'd totally claimed to myself and as, but it was an identity-based claiming, identity-based claiming. One of the things that I, that helped me move into the um, a kind of a larger relationship, because I didn't identify, 
I didn't identify with those things around me. I didn't identify with my family. I didn't identify with the food. I just didn't identify with things. So my identity was kind of uh, internally based. And then, when I was in the sixth grade or late in the fifth grade, I discovered a radio station out of Nashville, Tennessee, with a hundred thousand megawatts or whatever megahertz, whatever those things are that radio things broadcast. They had big radio station things in those days, and at midnight they played blues, and I got to hear the blues, and instantly I said, "This is this captures my feelings. This captures my life." And so my life then took on uh, some sort of an identity I, that uh, there was a kind of identity of, um, of, uh, that, that I would call a cultural identity. Because, oh, this, my, my, life, my life is somehow like this. And that was, that was a tremendous uh, positive thing for me. It, it gave me, uh, it, it, uh, my isolation went down a lot. And then one day, they played Billy Holiday's God Bless the Child. I don't know how many of you know this, uh, this song of God Bless the Child. It's a wonderful, wonderful song. Uh, she actually wrote it uh, uh, after having had a fight with her mother. <laughs> uh, but it's, it, it, the, the lyric that was so important to me is God Bless the Child. It's God her own or his own. She thought it in her head as his own, but uh, you can do it as their own, however you just imagine it, but that's how she wrote it. God bless the child that has got his own. Mama may have and Papa may have, but God bless the child that's got his own. And at that moment, I realized, oh, there are people like me. This, this person's like me in some way in terms of this sense of I felt like a child who had my own, trying to find my own. And I'd not encountered anyone who expressed things like that. I'd looked. And now I had this, uh, now I had this sense of not only do I have some sense of a, that, there's the, that the world reflects my inner experience and the way I was growing up, but also that there, was a, a, there had to be lots of people like me you know, who were having this. And this was all uh, a part of building identity. So years go by and many, many things happen. And um, I, I'm suddenly a Raja Yogi in my 20s, quite dedicated to it. And one of the things in Raja Yoga you do is this neti neti, not this, not this, so that you, you disidentify with the body. I am not this body, I am not this mind, eternal bliss I am, this kind of chanting that would go on. And I did all that chanting and I intellectually agreed with that. But I wasn't really changed. I wasn't really changed. I was still, I was still all the ways that I was identified, just as this letting go. I had, I had not let go in that way. And then in my 30s, I, uh, one night sitting in this, I was an editor in New York, and uh, I had this realization one night sitting there with manuscripts. I kept, I had more than one such realization that that five-year-old that I had kept alive as an identity all of these decades was actually just a little boy. I was so stunned that this was just a little boy. And I realized 
there, he couldn't possibly be ashamed of himself. How can any five-year-old be ashamed of himself? It, it was, I was just like, oh no, oh no. I have so, all of these years, held this little boy responsible for, for not being whom this uh, larger view thought he should be. And he was just a little boy. He was just a little boy. And I had not known, as strange as this sounds, because I was quite psychologically sophisticated in many ways, but I had not known that I, that I was something other than the experience that I was having in my mind. I had not known that there was other experiences happening that just were not appearing in the conscious mind. That that little boy never, that, that he, it was not safe for that little boy, so he never showed up. And I never noticed that he was not showing up because who was showing up was surviving and even thriving. Not thriving right away, it took a long time to find any ground for thriving. But I did not, I didn't know. And this was the start of letting go of identity. Because this was so central to me, this, this, the, the, my consciousness that had been there from the beginning, that was so distinct. And I saw that that consciousness was, was dependent too. It was dependent, it was, it was arising due to causes and conditions, was not permanent, and that I had nurtured it. And I was, I was very, um, uh, I apologize to that little boy and have done lots of practices. Some of the practices I've shared with you on this and other retreats and how to deal with things like this. And then much later, much later, in, after having found the Dhamma, did I start letting loose of all of these other things uh, including this, the, um, the, uh, the, the, the being the one who knows. It's so, it's so uh, enticing to be, to identify as the one who knows. The one who knows is arising and passing too. Consciousness itself is there, this kind of, um, Luminous aspect of consciousness is a subject of debate in Buddhism and various schools of Buddhism. But this, even the one who knows, even the one who's here wanting to find freedom, arises and passes. In time, there develops a new relationship with this arising and passing that is so empowering, so satisfying compared to our surface level, get ahead, you know, get praise, uh, be loved, that all these kinds of regular rewards. There's a deeper level of rewards that become available. But it does not happen without the letting go, without the letting go of these identities. Opening to it, we, the opening to it uh, this possibility of letting go, but in the end, there still has to be a choice of letting go. This is uh, of the Venerable Sumedho with his advice on this subject. The practice of letting go is very effective for minds obsessed by compulsive thinking. Nobody in here suffers from that. <laughs> the practice of letting go is very effective for minds obsessed by compulsive thinking. 
you simplify your meditation practice down to just two words, let go. Rather than to try to develop this practice and then that and achieve this and go into that and understand this and read the suttas and study the Abhidhamma and then learn Pali and Sanskrit then the Madhyamakaya and the Prajnaparamita, get ordinations in the Hinayana and Mahayana and Vajrayana, write books and become a world-renowned authority on Buddhism, instead of becoming the world's expert on Buddhism and being invited to great international Buddhist conferences, just let go. Let go. Let go. I did nothing but this for two years. Every time I tried to understand or figure things out, I'd say, let go, let go, until the desire would fade out. His integrity is such, that means he really did this. This was really his practice. He had that kind of uh, collected and gathered mind that he could practice this way. I did nothing but this for two, about two years. Every time I tried to understand or figure things out, I'd say, let go, let go, let go, until the desire would fade out. So I'm making it very simple for you to save you from getting caught in incredible amounts of suffering. There's nothing more sorrowful than having to attend international Buddhist conferences. <laughs> so let go, let go. Every identity that comes up, just let it go. You know, I, I'm, I'm the one who's uh, 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 late to the lunch line, you know, and I am, I am identifying, I'm having this experience, I'm late to the lunch line, uh, the, the, some of the things I like are going to be gone, or whatever that identity around the one in the lunch line. You see yourself, now I'm the one who's, who's, who's uh, you know, taking identity in that, let it go. I'm the one who, uh, who, who can't get very concentrated, let it go. Just let it go. Don't figure it out. Don't see how it's composed of this and that. Just let it go. We don't have to go through all the processes of, of uh, looking at everything from this criteria of, of that it's not permanent and da-da-da-da-da-da-da. It's when we feel identity, let it go. Just let it go. You can try it for 24 hours, starting right now. Every time you notice and be alert, just let go. See what it starts to feel like to let go. It might be a very uh, wholesome organization of identity. Let that go too. Just let go. Just be present here now. Let's close our eyes for a moment. In this very moment, wherever you feel attachment, clinging, there's an identity. Let it go.
tell anyone, don't ask anyone's permission, don't have a view or opinion about it. Just let it go, here, now. Thank you for your kind attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.